0: Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we have the opportunity to continue our reflections into the great ancient Christian thinkers, those spiritual fathers that we have been discussing now over the last eight, nine months. And and it is Tuesday, so I have John O'Hara to do this with. So John, it is great to have you with me another evening. Thank you again, Joe. So John, uh, we have been in this in this age, this uh, post-golden age of doctrine. And as I noted over the last few weeks, this really has afforded us uh, the time to discuss some just towering figures to the likes of St. Jerome, St. Pope Leo the Great, uh, certainly St. Augustine. Uh, Who else did we discuss? St. Benedict over the last few weeks. I mean, these really are giants. And this week, we once again have the opportunity to talk about a great and not because we call him great, but because the Church calls him great. It calls him Magnus, right? Yes. <laughs> Where we get the word magnificent, and that is, of course, St. Gregory the Great, our second pope who is called great. Of course, Leo was a pope. And in light of this, you know, this greatness, it really points to the fact that, you know, there's a lot to talk about here, John. So what I do want to do is, is jump right into this this man who we know as St. Gregory the Great, this man who we uh, owe a great deal to what we've been talking about over the past few weeks in St. Benedict, because again, it was uh, in his work, the dialogues, that is St. Gregory the Great's work, dialogues, that we um, got to know uh, that all-important figure of St. Benedict. So with that, what can we say and what do we know about St. Gregory the Great? Pope
1: Gregory uh, was born around 540, and he was Pope, from 590 to 604, those 14 years. And he came from a very well-to-do Roman family, not only well-to-do, but politically connected, as politically Mm -hmm. connected as you can get. Mm -hmm. And uh, he came from great parents. His father and his mother are both saints. His father was Gordian, his mother was Sylvia. Might have been a little easier to make saints in those days, but they're they're considered (laughs) saints. He also had two sisters who were saints and they were uh, kind of women monks, we'll say, Mm -hmm. and uh, they were named Aniliana and Mm Tharacella. and so he came from very holy stock, hugely well-educated, and then at around 572, he uh, becomes the prefect of Rome. That's the highest-ranking political Roman that there is Mm -hmm. at that time. So in this post he learned a lot about negotiating with people administration running an organization and then he gives it up and he goes to his home which is like a mansion and he turns it into a monastery he remember he wrote about st benedict That's right. he mm-hmm. did not go to uh, monte cassino he went to his home and many uh, men followed him there and they became monks and he like i said he came from a wealthy family they had a lot of property in Sicily, six of those mansions were turned into monasteries Mm -hmm. and they were, they had monks in them. So there he is as a monk and he retires and he contemplates and reads scripture. And, uh, he already knows the Catholic faith, but Mm -hmm. now at at this point, the Pope calls him to, uh, I think this is Pelagius the third calls him to be the aprocrisarius that is papal nuncio mm-hmm. to constantinople and he goes there and he deals with the monophysite question which is a huge question if we go back to the consul Chalcedon, that was straightened out but it came back again mm-hmm. and it's not it's not done
0: yet as heresy has come back for you oh, know it's f- been around f- 1400 yeah. years right <laughs> yeah, yeah and um
1: and but anyway he works on the, also there is political problems uh Rome really does not have an emperor, and uh, there was a, a good emperor in, in in Constantinople, and then he died, and then uh, a not-so-good one came in with a very Monophysite wife, mm-hmm. and he was around for a while. Anyway, he worked on that and negotiated that, and then he comes back to uh, Pelagius, and Pelagius asks him to be his like number one assistant. And then uh, it gets to be really rainy in Rome, and we have floods, and mm-hmm. we have disease coming out, and Pelagius dies, and uh, Gregory is made Pope by acclamation. He tries to kind of get out of town, but he's, yeah. no, no, uh-uh, you're you're the Pope. Mm-hmm. So he becomes the Pope, and now it's 590, and he has 14 years to be a
0: Pope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. There's several things that jump out to me as you're talking there, John, the the, the first of which is is his family again, you know, which... Mm-hmm again, when you surround yourself with those kind of people and they're your loved ones, this is going to inspire some lofty Christian sentiment. And certainly that seed was planted inside of this man who we now know as great. You couple that with his sense of order, his sense of discipline, his sense of law because of the position he had in Rome, and you have the makings of something very special. He was a
1: Roman, and I mean, through and through he was a Roman, with all of
0: the great characteristics
1: that that very orderly society could get. Mm -hmm. Just a little line from my high school days. (laughs) One of the teachers said, if you take a look at the pictures of the Romans, you take a look, these are statues, and the statues of the Greeks, you'll see the Romans look a lot more like Americans. They were (laughs) clean-shaven, business-looking, hard folks. You know, okay, so... Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so here you have this man who... Um, comes from this great family, well-to-do family, but very spiritual family, obviously, as you put it, this great spiritual stock. Uh, but he is a Roman, and so he does have that deep sense of order, rule, uh, discipline. But he goes back because of the influence of St. Benedict. He, he he retreats to recollect with God in, in this monastic life. And there, I think it's very important to uh, be reminded, John, that uh, God was doing more work in him and preparing him for what he was going yes. to do i find it a fascinating truth in history to see all of these great men literally speaking great men and so many saints resist resist these great calls he did everything in his power not to become pope he yes. he yeah he fled mm-hmm. he wanted nothing to do with it and yet he realized that you want to know what god might be calling me and everything that he's shown me up to this point to become Pope. And again, John, uh, you talked about it. The historical context here is very important. You know, that the Visigoths sacked Rome back in the early 5th century, and in 455, the Vandals seized the city. You know, the last emperor of the West died in, what, roughly 475 AD, and Rome, uh, once synonymous with uh, world rule, descended into anarchy, as did much of Western Europe. With the fall of Rome, what did we have? But a gradual collapse of civil order. The law had no force. The military dissolved. Things like travel, communications, and trade could no longer proceed peaceably as it did under Roman rule. You know, John, no one wanted to see this happen. Anarchy, it's repugnant. You know, even the barbarians wanted to inhabit a prosperous land. But once the imperial government had vanished, what could take its place? In steps Gregory. With the breakdown of the Roman army and court system, the church alone survived as a unified multinational force for order. Why? We've talked about it, John. (laughs) We talked about it last week. The church possessed laws and an educated hierarchy that respected fairness and an impulse towards charitable works which ultimately bring about, again, what did we talk about last week? A new civilization rooted in love. So it was that the man we call St. Gregory the Great steps in and reunifies uh, this, this chaotic land. The world was changing dramatically
1: at this time. Easier to see looking back, but uh, if you go to Constantinople... They were having military attacks from the Bulgars, Mm -hmm. from the Persians, and Islam was just getting wound up. Yep, yep. And they were going, uh, remember, they are going to cease to be, they'll last till 1453 when the Turks take them over. Over in Rome, what you have is a bunch of kingdoms. They are the kingdoms of various barbarians, the Lombards being the foremost in Italy at that time, but they were Visigoths, a little easier to work with, and we had barbarians in Spain, Gaul, and germany
0: mm-hmm. the franks and right. too, yeah
1: and uh so and just another little thing we had great saints come from syria and iraq and those areas they are just we're losing them to various either aspects of christianity they're not very orthodox or to islam and you know that that they're not around anymore
0: yeah it's interesting there john uh, when you read Uh, our Emeritus Pope Benedict XVI on St. Gregory the Great, he really highlights the relationship between the friendships that he had built up uh, through the years and how those friendships impacted his relationships uh, when he was Pope. Essentially, that St. Gregory saw the people of these kingdoms with the eyes of a good pastor and was always concerned with proclaiming the word of salvation to them, establishing fraternal friendships, and continuing those friendships he already had with them in view of a future peace founded on uh, what Benedict would call a mutual respect and peaceful coexistence that essentially would be established between uh, the Italians, the Imperials, and ultimately the, the Lombards. He was primarily concerned with the conversion of the young people And the new civil structure of Europe. So what he would do was take up this question of evangelization and ask the question, why? Certainly first and foremost that these people would be evangelized by Christ, but ultimately then what would that lead to? We talk loosely about, you know, create a new civilization of love. Saint Gregory the Great John, Is probably the one figure we would turn to to best understand this phrase, new civilization of love, because he entered into that dynamic of friendship and how that would lead ultimately to that great evangelization moment, and how this in turn impacted a structure that would find itself rooted in truth and in love. He saw that in the Lombards,
1: Constantinople saw the Lombards as kind of dirty and uh, not very pleasant. Mm-hmm. And whatever uh, Gregory saw, he was able to work, he saw them as people that needed to be Christianized and saved. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we're supposed to look at in yep. the new evangelization. And he saw them that way. And he worked with their king, a guy named Aguilof, mm-hmm. and uh, talked to him. And they had made a kind of a an agreement that lasted for three years, and then they got into this much better relationships. So he was able to work with uh, these barbarians, and he had great success in Spain and Gaul and Germany. we can get into that later. But
0: uh... yeah, I love the phrase that comes to us from Benedict the 16th, where he talks about how Gregory the Great's desire for God w- was always alive in the depths of his soul, and precisely because of this, he was always close to his neighbor, to the needy people of his time. So, he had this deep sense of law, order, discipline, and that was guided by a deeper sense of what God is all about. And there's no question, once again, that this is why we look upon him as, as magnus, as, as magnificent, as great.
1: One of his first books, right around 590, was a book called Regula Pastoralis, I mm-hmm. believe. Yep, yep, the pastoral and, rule. Right, yeah, and he goes into how these rules should be. That's very Roman. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think he may have gotten some of his ideas from Cicero five centuries earlier. And uh, yeah, here's what bishops do, here's what abbots do, here's what priests do. Uh,
0: And uh, I mean, it was a classic. Mm -hmm. Still is. What was it, John, that was at the heart of the pastoral rule? Well, this idea of what it meant to be a preacher. Okay, what does it mean to be a preacher? We think about being a preacher as someone who just goes out there and, and preaches truth. Okay? For St. Gregory the Great, it was so much more than that. It was about entering deeper into that contemplation, that recollection with God that he became so familiar with as a a monk or someone who had started or established all of these monasteries, going back home for that time that you talked about. Um, He understood the importance of recollection. And so for him, the preacher was one who would draw from the recollection and preach out from that recollection. Benedict XVI would talk about this, that it was not only about the minister of God preaching, but that every Christian had the duty to preach of what he has experienced in his innermost being to bring the good news of salvation to all people. I love this quote that comes to us from St. Gregory the Great as he talks about the preacher. He says, The preacher must dip his pin into the blood of his heart, then He can also reach the ear of his neighbor. Okay, go deep into God, and then you'll understand how to exist for other. This knowing and doing, speaking and living, knowing and acting, that harmonious integration between word and action, thought and deed, prayer and dedication. This is what was at the heart, John, of of the pastoral rule. That has been part of almost everyone we have talked. Go
1: back to Saint Benedict. Yeah. Here, a guy is hanging out in a cave on a cliff, and he attracts people. And I, I hate to use the old cliche, but the real McCoy, the yeah. real yeah. thing, yeah. truth. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and people just saw that in him. And I think they saw this in Gregory. And in one of the lectures I heard about him, they gave some of his some sentences from him. And this guy could write. Mm-hmm. Now he wrote a lot. And it has come down to us in uh, he has more eight hundred and sixty six letters mm-hmm. we have of his. Yeah, and uh, there uh, this guy I mean, it is not a requirement of the job to be a super intellect. There mm-hmm. are popes who have been that, but it's not a requirement of the job. And I mean, and he also
0: had the administrative talent to go along with it. Wow. Yeah, amen. And you know he's a doctor of the church, right? Yes. But he's not a doctor of the church in the sense that we might think that he's a doctor because for many other doctors of the Church, they had this very systematic presentation of the faith, and and we study them in light of being a, you know, a doctor of the Church. Yet this was not St. Gregory the Great. It was just the accumulation of writings over time, that when you would begin to go through them, you would see the depth of this man. Um, But there was always this moral emphasis. If you want to get to the heart of St. Gregory the Great, It's to appreciate this moral emphasis. In fact, it's his commentary on the Book of Job, which we call the Book of Morals, that for all intents and purposes had become the summa uh, for the Middle Ages on moral theology. And uh, what did he do there? It's fascinating. He broke open sacred scripture, as we've talked about it, John, uh, you know, going all the way back to origin huh where origin gave us the senses of scripture you know the literal sense and the spiritual sense that we've talked about a great deal John he got into job and he broke job down in the literal sense in the allegorical sense right typology the description of one thing under the image of another right but certainly that third sense which was so important is the moral sense now exactly. today John we talk about the moral sense within the context of the spiritual sense Okay, not necessarily in the context of the literal sense. The literal sense is always the historical context, the intention of the author. But he would focus in on the moral sense as something that belonged to itself, so that, you know what, anyone can open up sacred scripture and not get lost in a theoretical application of sacred scripture, but simply be moved. And he wanted to make sure that anyone he spoke to would understand the moral dimension of what he was saying, And of course, what better figure to do this with? What better book to do this with than than Job? And so he would focus in on certainly Job's suffering, but also the many lessons um, about Job that often go unnoticed. I think one of the great lessons that comes to us from the book of Job, John, that the likes of St. Gregory the Great would have us see is we often think of Of Job within the context of of patience. Oh, if I only had the patience of Job because of all of his suffering. But to appreciate the history, to appreciate the deeper truth, is to understand that uh, Job was an orator. Uh, Job was an inquirer. He was one who constantly asked questions. So here you have this book where he's constantly asking questions, and he's never getting an answer. He's never Mm -hmm. getting an answer until the end of the book, where suddenly Job is satisfied. Now what's the catch? Well, he's satisfied and God never answered any of his questions. But ah, there's the lesson. The man who we say is so patient actually was very impatient. (laughs) And the lesson to be had is he wasn't satisfied because he got the answer to all of his questions. He was satisfied because finally, even through all the questioning, he came to understand that it was all about the presence of God, because at the end of the story, we know that he was satisfied because he was in the presence of God. If it was because he got an answer, then it's answer with capital A, right? And this is the kind of thing that St. Gregory the Great would draw out. And I love that point in Job because it really distills for us how you can turn to the church fathers and you can grab hold of deeper truths, I know we have a lot of non-Catholic listeners, John, who do spend time with the Church Fathers and they know what we're talking about. They roll up their sleeves and they read all of these rich, rich commentaries, John, on sacred scripture. And you come across these kinds of truths and you say to yourself, wow, this is some loaded stuff. This is some rich, rich stuff. And then what happens? You're drawn to them. You're drawn to their insights. Another great truth that comes to us from Uh, St. Gregory the Great is the way in which he talked about intellectual humility. That if we think we can perceive the depths of God, we must always start on bed and knee. Mm. We can know a lot of things, John, in the intellect. But does that give us insight into how to act morally? Not always. Sometimes it it gets in the way. You know, it, it blows our head up. To the point where we we can't wear our our hat anymore, right? You know, we just get so far ahead of ourselves, we have forgotten. Uh, We forget that it's all about this moral dimension, and that was widely important for St. Gregory the Great, widely important.
1: Yeah, when he was in his monastery before he became really active, he read Scripture, and he read the Fathers of the Church, Mm -hmm. the same people we have been talking about on this program, Scripture and
0: those Fathers, which kind of put flesh to the Church. Yes. Uh, Yeah, well put, John. What was that line from Mark Twain? History never repeats itself, but it has a rhyme scheme, right? (laughs) It has a rhyme scheme. You are beginning to see the rhyme scheme. Why? Because, yeah, the likes of Gregory the Great, who are they studying? They're studying origin. They're studying the guys we talked about three months ago, four months ago, five months ago. Now, of course, for St. Gregory the Great, it's two, three, four hundred years ago, but for us, it's just a few months, right? They spent time with these guys, and in doing so, as as you put it so well, he was beginning to see the flesh that belonged to the skeleton, uh-huh. and and in so doing, it led him to to really do what he did. You know, yeah. he would draw John from those days in the monastery when he was speaking to the people. I think it was, what, St. Augustine's second conversion, where he talked about bringing the faith down to the people, but this was a difficult uh-huh. thing for him, so... It was his second conversion, as Benedict XVI talked about it. Well, this was very important to Gregory the Great as well.
1: He also wrote a great book on Ezekiel. So we have Job, we have Ezekiel, and he wrote a lot of letters. People from all over the place were writing him letters, and he responded to these. Like I said, 866 letters Mm -hmm. still Mm -hmm. exist. No pope before him wrote as much as he did, and very few after him has written as much as he does not a requirement of the job to write a lot sure he did yeah And i also want to point out another thing but he got quite sick Mm -hmm. i think gout was his problem i'm not sure what gout is but uh, one of them yeah and the uh, foot yeah it may have been because of severe fasting when he was in his monastery uh but i've heard that he really could not get out of bed towards the end his voice got very weak when he gave a homily, he had to have a deacon. He had written it out, and the deacon would have to enunciate it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was in a great deal of pain towards the end, and yet that work ethic, we just keep right on going. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, many say that uh, his suffering at the end of his life was due to his fasting when he was in the monastery, because again, this was one of the great ways and continues to be one of the great ways to witness to our faith. This was very common, was and is very common among the monks. Something else is you were talking there about the 800, over 800 letters. These letters, they're most fascinating. If you can get your hands on them, go to newadvent.org, because you know, John, what you have in those letters is the Pope, St. Gregory the Great, responding to very practical problems. If you were to read a letter from, say, 595 A.D., it could be a letter that was written today. know, And he's, he gives all sorts of advice. When your advice is rooted in truth, it transcends time. He was always encouraging those who he was writing to, as well as those who he was preaching to, that all of the situations we find ourselves in, see them as providential. Uh, see them as a way and a means to achieve uh, the heights of holiness. And, of course, uh, in doing so, you will discover the beauty of the faith.
1: Let's not forget, and might be off base here,
0: Gregorian chant. Mm, Not at all, not at all. Yeah, yeah. He was
1: quite into liturgy.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, Yeah, and, of course, Gregorian chant, which is so popular today, even outside of Christian circles, really, um, is certainly credited to him. A man of many talents, a man of many talents. There were very few things that he could not do. And again, this is part of the reason why he was Magnus, part of the reason why he was so great, why he was so magnificent. Now, when we talk about magnificence and we talk about greatness, as we've already spoken to humility, I would like to close our time together, John, this evening with a re-emphasis on where greatness starts. Huh? Anytime you talk about the great ones, you will always find littleness. You will always find that disposition of humility. St. Gregory the Great was intimate with the humble God. This is why he wished to be called the servant of the servants of God. This phrase was not some pious formula on his lips, but in every way, shape, and form, a true manifestation of his way of living and acting. Therefore, Pope Gregory was convinced that a bishop, above all, should imitate the humility of God, And follow Christ in this way. His desire was to truly live as a monk in permanent contact with the Word of God. But for the love of God, he knew, like Saint Benedict, huh, as we talked about last week, how to make himself the servant of all in a time full of tribulation suffering was to become Pope. He knew how to make, as Benedict XVI reminds us, he knew how to make himself servant of the servants precisely because he was this. He is great, and he shows us the measure of true greatness. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was, the beginning is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth